All right. I want to start out by sharing a little story with you from this week. So I've got two younger sisters. Uh, one of them's name is Lindsay, and she's a pastor of a progressive church, small town, northern Indiana. We're talking like 4,000 people in the town. And I was talking with her, and she was telling me about a town council meeting that she had been to that weekend. And I knew that this town council meeting was really important to her because she had been trying to arrange to get a speaker there who was coming, um, it was a speaker from Notre Dame University, which is fairly nearby, who was coming to just um, like educate the community and encourage them to pass a referendum in favor of driving cards for undocumented immigrants. So it was people be able to um, legally drive to and from work and be able to get insurance, things like that. And so Lindsay didn't think there'd be a whole lot of resistance um, given the makeup of their town and just what she knows of the people there. The thing to know about her small town is it's about 40% immigrants, uh, many of them undocumented, certainly not all, most of them probably from Mexico and some from Central America. So Lindsay speaks Spanish fluently. She taught high school English there for 12 years. Um, it was making me think of like, like Adam out in Chelsea a little bit. Like Lindsay, we were trying to figure out like what percentage of the town she'd actually like taught English and it's like, wow, it's a lot of it. She's pretty embedded in that area and a lot of her best friends are part of the immigrant community, her former students, her congregants. Um, I know within her congregation, many people who have licenses have been helping to drive people who don't have licenses to and from work, and so this was important to her. So she goes to this town hall meeting, she says it's packed out, there's just a ton of people there. The Notre Dame professor gets up and gives this really great presentation just talking about how it's like a win-win for the entire community. And then she's like, Emily, like, you wouldn't believe what happened. She's like, I mean, you would, it's small town, northern Indiana. She was like, oh my gosh, there was this guy who got up and he was just so racist and so dehumanizing and he was sharing these like super fringe ideas. And she's like, it wasn't just that, it was like he was using his power and she's like his tone and his demeanor, like he was such a bully and he was just being so mean to anybody who was trying to challenge him. And she's like, it just created this atmosphere where the only person that had the confidence to challenge him at all was the town lawyer. But she's like, my read of the room and of our community is that this isn't representative and it was just, it was just awful. So she's like, they opened up the mic and I knew, she's like, I just felt this like rage in me. She's like, I knew I had to like get up and speak, but I had to do that like little check in your head where you're like, am I so mad that I'm gonna hurt the cause? Or am I actually going to be able to like, you know, kind of keep it together here? So she got up, she said the things that you would hope that you would say, like a lot of these are, our friends are here in the room. Our kids go to school together. We work at the factory together. There's a couple factories that hire a lot of undocumented immigrants. Like, we do business together. These are our literal neighbors, and we want to treat people the way we'd like to be treated. And she went and she said, she sat down. She's like, I felt detached from my body. I don't even know exactly what I said. So she checked in with a couple of friends who were like, you were calm, but we could tell you were like, irate. <laughs> and she's like, I just, did, I just felt this like white hot something just coursing through my body. That white hot rage that we feel when injustices are happening, there's a Hebrew word for that, and the word is kana. And if you, if you grabbed the sheet where I have like some of the um, verses broken out, it's Q-A-N-N-A with the, the straight line above the A, kana. It describes the fiery anger that brings about justice. It might be the anger some of you are feeling as you're watching the news about Tyree Nichols this week, right? And you're just like, oh, there's just this fiery rage that knows something needs to change and it's not right. 
Right, so we've been in this sermon series. We're talking about metaphors for God. We're using a book by a rabbi, Rabbi Spitzer. God is here. And we've been talking about things like how God is Hamakom, the place. God is the rock of my heart, or the mother rock, which was the weird one I looked at last week. Like a mother rock that's oozing honey and oil, a really strange picture in the Bible. Today we are going to add to that by talking about God as consuming fire. So um, Rabbi Spitzer in the book tells us that Yahweh as consuming fire God is called Elkanah. So that's the word for the consuming fire God, Elkanah. And so to talk about God as consuming fire, we have to talk about anger because this idea of being, God being a consuming fire is really often, almost always connected in scripture with the emotion of anger. Right? It's probably not much of a surprise that all of the biblical words that are associated with divine anger are related in some way to heat, because that's true in a lot of languages. I've studied a few myself. I was trying to think um, in my old Mandarin, it's been a while since I've spoken it, but the word that came to mind was fa hao, which means fire, but can also mean anger. And you can probably think of some in English. Steaming mad, you're hot under the collar, you're boiling rage, you have a fiery temper. Right? It's the picture of like the cartoon characters with the steam coming out of their nose right? and the volcanoes coming out of their head. Those things are very often interconnected in our languages. So I want to look at a passage here from Zephaniah because I want us to have an example of a scripture where these things are intertwined so that we're just not talking abstractly, but it's, it's an example of many. So we'll start with Zephaniah 3.8. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day that I will stand up to testify. I've decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them. All of my fierce anger, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Right? That passage probably feels jarring to us. Right? It's like poor Barney saying that he got up into teach Revel. I didn't know we taught Revelation to the kids at all. But <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot with this. Right? It sounds like a God who's a little bit out of control. All of the, like when you read these kinds of passages in Scripture, it can be a little bit like, what is this? Wrath and fire and jealousy and God destroying the world. Well, there's a couple of things to keep in mind here that are helpful when approaching a Scripture like this. Right? The first thing that we would always um, start by doing is ask the genre. Right, what's the literary genre of what we're reading? And in this case, the passage is part of a genre of literature called apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature, it, just, it employs dramatic imagery that's understood to be dramatic. Right? The person writing this doesn't literally want God to come and destroy the entire world. It's trying to convey something else. That said, imagery like this can be found in non-apocalyptic parts of scripture. You'll find it through some of the Psalms, even in some of the other stories. That's not the whole picture of what's going on here, right? Um, the thing that we have to allow for is broader context. And the imagery like this in Zephaniah is not used in a vacuum, but it's actually used in the context of many, many, many stories and poems that include this kind of language, both in the Bible as well as in um, other writings, extra-biblical writings, we'd say, that are outside of it. Right, so what do we need to consider here when we're looking at the whole? First, I'm going to unpack the word there that's translated as jealous because it's that same word we were talking about, kana. They, they translated kana as jealous. 
Um, and that's a traditional translation, but newer scholarship says that's really not the best translation. That's not what's getting um, at what's happening here, right? The picture isn't of like a jealous, abusive husband coming and just like throwing things around. There's a little bit different of a context that's happening. So Rabbi Spitzer in the book, she pointed to a scholar at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Israel. The Negev is just like, you know, that pointy part in the southern part of Israel. His name is Dr. Nissim Amzalag. I hope I get your name right if you're Dr. Amzalag. I think that's his name. He's an archaeologist, and one of his niche areas of study as an archaeologist is ancient metallurgy. So metallurgy is just like, you know, like you take ore, you melt down, you extract metals, and you make things. I think, God. Just thank God for people with like really niche interests. He studies ancient metallurgy and particularly metallurgy of the cultures in the Bible. So it was like Canaanite metallurgy and Hebrew metallurgy, how it was done, what words were associated with it. So I went and I found, um, with the help of Betsy Williams, the article that Rabbi Spitzer had referred to, and I read through this scholar's article, and then I read through a few others who were also looking at this word and how it's used. And their conclusion is that that word kana in contexts like this is not about jealousy. So the word was most often used in ancient cultures in association with a metallurgy practice of the era that was called furnace remelting. Stick with me, I know this is kind of a lot. Furnace remelting. And that just improves the quality of the metals like the second time around after its primary melting, right? So let's say you've got some ore, you melt it down, you get copper, you make something. The copper eventually becomes corroded, you melt it down again, if I'm understanding it right, it gets rid of like the corrosion and the impurities and then you can make something completely new, right? And so that process is about improving and transforming something that already exists. So the idea isn't that like God is fiery and angry because God is jealous and gonna come and wipe everything out, but that God is a consuming fire because God is in the business of transforming. So the, the quote from Amzalag that I have on your sheet there, the divine kana was not viewed by the Israelites simply as the destructive expression of anger by God. Precisely as in furnace remelting, it was conceived as a wonder, leading to a complete rejuvenation of creation through a massive destruction of shape. So what we're getting at with this metaphor is that there's a divine attribute of God that the Hebrew people are trying to describe, and it's a divine attribute that's both destructive and creative. And what it's usually about here is taking something, oppressors, the exploitative kingdoms of the world, empires that were literally oppressing the Hebrew people at the time, taking an unjust system, taking an unjust situation, taking those things and reshaping them into something else, something hopefully more useful, more helpful, and more just, right? So when we're looking through the Hebrew scripture, we see that God's dream is for humanity to experience justice and peace and love and to create a place where there's equity and that where we're living out of a sense of abundance, not out of a sense of scarcity. And where we're living in right relationship, not just to each other, but we've got connection to the earth and we're treating everyone fairly. And the words that are often used for that in the Hebrew scriptures is it's called God's shalom, which we translate as peace, but is actually not a great, it's not a great translation into the English because it's a much more holistic sense of what peace means. It includes all of the justice and the right relationship of all of creation. 
We sometimes call it the kingdom of God in the Bible. I really like God's good realm, just because kingdom has some like little critiques of it, that we usually say kingdom instead of kingdom. But God's good realm, it's all the same idea for those good things to be the norm, right? so that people don't go without and people don't suffer. And so God's direction through scripture then is to teach inch by inch to try and teach humanity a more just and equitable world, like how to do that. Sometimes that looks a little bit odd to us, but sometimes we just look at it as God's trying to meet humans wherever they're at in that process of trying to get us to a better and better world. And what we see is God's fiery anger flare when humans resist doing the thing that would help them thrive. Right? When we resist doing the just thing because God's heart is for our good. And I believe in free will, like we can resist it, we absolutely can, but the imagination of the writers of the Hebrew scriptures is that when we resist it, that God gets so frustrated. And it's that frustration that's connected to seeing injustices prevail, right? to seeing the vulnerable suffer, to seeing creation suffer. And so in the scripture, we see God's consuming fire is kindled. It's kindled against oppressors. It's um, kindled when something needs to be remade, right? It's describing that emotion of God's desire to remake something and for the writer's desire to see something remade. Systems need reforming. And that's when the writers start to imagine God as having a part of them that's like a consuming fire, right? So it's not that God is literally going to burn people up on the earth. It's that feeling that like my sister Lindsay had when she saw people being dehumanized and people's lives being made harder by a system that isn't just. That's the feeling it's describing. Does that make sense? That's the kana of God. That's the metaphor that's happening. So God is consuming fire. Means that God's essential nature is justice. And God's essential nature is to relieve suffering. And that God's essential nature is to knock down systems that degrade and to rebuild systems that humanize. And we're to take away that God's essential nature is transformation. Right? So when we're reading these things that can seem a little bit like hard to understand, understand that they're just trying to, um, from the point of view of people who have been living under oppression, describe that feeling they imagine God is having. That like, surely God wants to remake this system. Surely God wants to remake this system and come and kind of burn up what we have because this isn't working. So God as consuming fire. Man, I feel like I could just preach that a little bit, but I know we're going over a bit. We have our meditation. Um, I put it. I think I put the uh, scripture on your sheet if you want it. But I would invite you. Um, we can just meditate on that idea of God as consuming fire. I put something from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we're receiving a good realm that can't be shaken, let's be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for God, or for our God is a consuming fire. So let's just take a moment, I'll tell you when the, when the, when the time is up, and just meditate on this idea of God as kind of transforming fire.
Spirit, we join with the ancient Hebrew people. We join with that imagination of you as holy, consuming fire. And we ask that you would allow that part of you, that aspect of you, to also fill us. Fill us with a desire to see more justice in the world. Fill us with a desire to see systems reform so that there's less suffering in these spaces. We ask that, like the burning bush where you came to Moses, when you asked Moses to liberate, to liberate people from slavery, to go and lead a literal liberation movement, you came as fire. But you came as a fire that didn't consume that bush. Because we know you consume the things that shouldn't be there. And we ask that that would also burn in us, Lord, that that fire for justice would burn in us, but it wouldn't burn us up. That it wouldn't wear us out that we would be able to maintain our self-care so that we can keep going in this, that we can support the fire that brings about a transformation of the world around us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would just empower us. We ask that you would help us to understand that aspect of you and that part of you that is kana, that is holy fire. Thank you so much for who you are. In the name of your Son, amen.